Before launching into this week's message, I think what I'd like to do is recap a little bit from where what we uh, heard last week. Um, I don't know how many of you were here last week for our guest speaker, David Bennett. Um, he came all the way here from Oxford, England, and he, uh, he's from Australia. He's got this really posh uh, accent, and uh, he's fun to listen to, but he was also kind of convicting. And um, I'll tell you that we brought him because we had him in the podcast and all that stuff, and, and he talked to us about... Uh, homosexuality and Christianity and all these issues, and, and uh, he is a gay man who's chosen to live a celibate life and give his entire, like, romantic life over to Jesus for the sake of just building his kingdom. It's an incredible story, but what David Bennett really spoke to me about wasn't really about any of that stuff. That's important, but what David really spoke to me about was this concept of discipleship, like he kept talking about. We had him here until Wednesday, Sunday through Wednesday. And he kept talking to our leaders and our small groups about discipleship, like uh, as though we're not quite getting it. And he said to me on Sunday morning when he got here, he said, Pastor Eric, I had a vision. And uh, I'm trying to do his accent. I'm terrible at it. But he was like, I'm, I had a vision of your church awakening. And I was like, we're awake, bro. We're good. We're awake. And he was like, no, no, you have no idea. And he was talking about moving from church attendance to discipleship, where you kind of count the cost and you follow Jesus, no matter whether it's pleasant or not, right? That's, that's obviously common sense Christianity, but that's not how we often live church together. Like, I fall for the trap all the time of trying, as a pastor, to create a pleasant church-going experience for all of you, the customers, I mean, congregants. Like, that's the trap. We sit around and we think, is the parking easy enough, and um, is is the offering, is, is it not awkward? And, and is the playground nice enough so that the kids will strong arm their parents to bring them back next week? Like, and I'm like, I'm worried about like, are my jokes funny? Is the coffee hot? Are my jeans tight enough? Like, am I cool? Like all this stupid stuff, stupid stuff that doesn't matter in the end. We get worried about because we want to grow a larger crowd. And David Bennett said some stuff that is so hard to hear that people walk away, and they don't come back. And I know that's difficult for us to wrap our heads around, but you know who else did that? Like Jesus kind of had that habit too, because David helped me to see once again that Jesus' mission might not have been drawing a big crowd in the first place. Sometimes when Jesus was done talking, there was a smaller crowd than when he started, because sometimes people aren't ready, and that's all right, because discipleship is a high bar. Discipleship is what he calls us all to. And so I will be honest when I tell you that when David Bennett came out here and said, I'm David Bennett and I'm fabulous, that's how he started his sermon. <laughs> I wasn't sure how it would land in Houston, Texas. I wasn't sure how y'all would do with David Bennett. But by the time he was done with us Wednesday when he, I drove him to the airport, like he had lit a fire. He had given us the gospel and lit a fire under us about what we're here to do. And it's not just to draw a crowd. To make disciples. And a disciple is not a fan. A disciple is a follower who gives the one he or she is following everything. And the, the, the disciple puts the one he's following at the center of their life. And that's what we're called to do. And not just be Sunday morning Christians. There really is no such thing as a Sunday only Christian. It's all or it's nothing. It's not anything in between.
All right. So what I love about David Bennett uh, being here is that he kind of fit right in with what we're talking about in this sermon series called A Time to Build. We're talking about visionary leadership here because what we understand leadership to be is influence, not office or position or job title or money or anything else. It's influence with people. And what that means is that you, even if you don't normally call yourself a leader, you are. Jesus calls all of us, God made all of us to be leaders in some capacity, to varying degrees. Obviously, some of us are more high-capacity leaders and all that, and some of us are lower-capacity leaders. But all of us have influence with somebody. So the question is, who are you leading, and where are you leading them? And David reminded me that the church needs more people who aren't just church attenders or church goers or warm bodies in seats. What we need are people who understand their role as leaders. People who influence others instead of being under the influence of culture. People who walk in a room and change the conversation instead of being changed by the conversation. People who change the climate around them just by the light shining through them. You know, even though that means you probably won't have a normal social life, <laughs> even though that means people will stop cussing around you or whatever that means, you know, silliness, but like whatever that means, it will come at a cost and following Jesus always does. And so when we talk about raising up disciples who follow Jesus, we're talking about raising up leaders and that's you, I hope. The way we're talking about leadership is by examining the life of this man named Nehemiah from the Old Testament. Nehemiah is kind of an obscure character. It's kind of an obscure book in the Old Testament. But I'll catch you up a little bit on what we talked about in Nehemiah last week. You have, I forgot to mention, you have study guides as well that can help you stay uh, with me here. But Nehemiah lived in the 400s B.C. So this story uh, picks up at, in the year 444 B.C. The history is that precise. 444 B.C. And what, what had happened is Nehemiah is living in the Persian Empire, the capital city of Susa. And he's living in Susa almost 150 years after Jerusalem, the mother city of Nehemiah's people, the Jews, Jerusalem fell to Babylon. It was completely destroyed. The walls, the temple, everything, gone, flattened. And a lot of people left Jerusalem during that time. I think Nehemiah's people might have been among them. Nehemiah is working in Susa. He has risen the ranks. He's got a pretty good gig. Remember what he is? He's a cup bearer. That's all he does. He stands there and holds a cup. That's a pretty sweet gig, probably compared to what the other foreigners had in the Persian Empire, so long as no one poisons the king, because you probably had to drink it first, and if you lived, then the king could drink it. That was it. That's all he did. But when Nehemiah heard that 150 years after the mother city, the center of Jewish life and practice and spirituality, Jerusalem was still in ruins. And the people had no pride about it. The people were not rebuilding. They were just wallowing in self-pity and mediocrity. Nehemiah was wrecked by this, wrecked so hard that he took four to five months after that and just prayed about it. And during that four to five month period, God spoke to Nehemiah and gave him a vision for the city restored and said, Nehemiah, you're the one to go and do it. And Nehemiah's like, all I know how to do is hold a cup. Lord, you don't want me to be the one building a wall. And God's like, you're exactly the one. Nehemiah took his life in his hands, 
and went to the king and asked for permission. Not only did the king grant Nehemiah permission, gave him his blessing, told him, I'll give you all the materials you need to build out of my own forest. You can take all the timber. And he said, I'll give you letters with my seal that show everyone else, all the other uh, rulers in the region that you're working under my protection. And Nehemiah sets off and heads for Jerusalem. That's where our story picks up today. All right, so this is Nehemiah chapter 2. Verse 11 is where we will um, begin. Uh, We talk about uh, vision and visionary leadership. All right. So um, I'm just going to read a a few words here. I'm not going to go very far into this. Okay. Nehemiah says, I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there, three days. Okay. All right. I stopped there for a reason. I'd like it if you all could please try and think to put yourself in Nehemiah's shoes, okay? You've got this awful news about this city that means a lot to you. You've waited four to five months. You've prayed and fasted. A lot of time has gone by. The city continues in its mediocrity. The king gives you his blessing. And timber, materials, supplies. You've got a pocket full of letters. You've got uh, the plan. You're the big man in the city now. You're going back to your people's mother city, Jerusalem, to rebuild it. This is your moment. What do you do when you get to Jerusalem? Do you do nothing for three whole days? I don't know. I know myself pretty well. And if I'm the guy with all the timber and the military escort and the pocket full of letters and I'm the man with the plan, I've already announced all of it by Instagram before I even get to Jerusalem. I am throwing myself a parade. Like, this is my moment. I'm the man. I'm not laying low for three days and doing nothing and telling no one. We're going to see later, Nehemiah didn't tell a soul about any of the stuff God was doing in his life. What's he doing for three days? Maybe, maybe he's resting. If any of you have ever moved from one city to another, you're like, well, he's unpacking, Eric. Give him time. Give him space. It's hard. Maybe. Or if you've ever, if you've ever signed up for a new Wi-Fi service, you're like, he was on the phone with Comcast for three days. That's how long it takes. Like, I understand there may be some explanation here, but I find it interesting that Nehemiah just pulls back. What I find interesting is that is in Nehemiah's character. That's his MO. You see it again and again. He gets the vision from God, and then he waits four or five months before he does anything about it. This is an important leadership trait that we all can develop as disciples of Jesus, following him and leading others to do the same, okay? So sometimes we get emotional, we get a little uh, impulsive, and we get a little full of ourselves when God gives us some big new idea, and then um, we, we get ahead of ourselves. We jump the gun. We put ourselves in the spotlight before we're really even ready to talk about what God has uh, for us to do. All right. So um, what happens is we speak without any intelligence. We don't even know what we're doing. I like to think, keep in mind, Nehemiah doesn't know how to build anything. He doesn't have any track record. He's not an architect. He's just a cupbearer. So I like to think that in those three days, maybe he's learning In silence, maybe he's Googling how to build 
a wall. I'm <laughs> like, that's what I would do. It starts those step-by-step YouTube videos. You ever do that, men? Where a real man shows you how to do stuff that men do? <laughs> I do that all the time. I've never, I've never done that for how to build a wall. I did it this week for how to get the musty smell out of your car after you've driven through three feet of water. I'd like to know that. Any real men in the house see me after church. Tell me how to do that. Nehemiah had to learn before he could speak. He had to guard his words and keep the vision God gave him close to the best. Because many a vision has died before it could even be fulfilled when people shared too soon, prematurely, before they were ready to speak intelligently about it. All right, we're going to see in a minute that Nehemiah didn't tell a soul. Listen, sometimes it's better not to tell anyone. When God sets a vision on your heart, sometimes it's better to be reticent, slow to speak. Because if you're not able to speak intelligently about it, you're going to lose the confidence of the people alongside of you. All right, so at this point, all Nehemiah had was a vision and the will to act. And so he laid low and stayed humble and kept his mouth shut until the time was right. This is the next part of the passage. It's from Nehemiah 2, verses 12 to 16. I set out, I love this part. I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me, no horses, except for the one I was riding. And by night, I went out through the valley gate, down the jackal well, dung gate, that means poop, the poop gate. So kids, just have a little fun with that. Examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on uh, toward the fountain gate and the king's pool. There was not enough room for my mount to get through, and so I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. And the officials, those are the Persian officials, they did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet, I had, not, had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or the officials or any others who would be doing the work. All right, this was a recon operation. Nehemiah, this is so cool, it's like a spy going out in the cover of night to gather intel before announcing his plans to anybody. Okay, so I think he's doing this for three reasons. The first reason is because he has to analyze and understand what happened in the past. You know the old adage, if you don't understand the past, you'll or learn from the past, you'll be doomed to repeat it. I think he's replaying the siege in his mind. When he sees the ruins, okay, they came from there. This is where we were vulnerable. This is how the Babylonians took us down. We need to rebuild in a way that doesn't expose our vulnerability again. So understanding the past is important whenever God's called you to do something new. Second, he's getting real about present circumstances. How dangerous will this be? Who do I put where? He's strategically thinking about a path forward. And third, he's counting the cost for reconstruction. So he's got the timber, he's got the materials, but it's going to cost more than that, right? It always does. Ask anybody who's ever built anything. It's going to go over budget. It's like, what's it going to cost with money, materials, people, time, social capital? What kind of opposition am I going to face? Nehemiah knows the minute he makes known what God's called him to do, he's going to have a target on his back. You should know that too. Anytime you make known what God is about to do in your life, 
you're going to face opposition from some places you'd never even imagined it. Especially if you speak too soon. The reason Nehemiah stays quiet, because if he speaks and doesn't know what he's talking about yet, he loses the confidence of everyone he needs to follow. You saw that he hadn't even spoken to the ones he would need help building from. You know, he hadn't even told them yet. Because if he, if he started going off about all these great plans and then somebody saw the YouTube clip on his phone, it's over. Like, there's no confidence there. And then they're like, are you sure, Nehemiah? And Nehemiah, who's not sure, because he's never built a wall, he's like, am I sure? I don't know. Maybe this was some big mistake. Listen, this happens all the time. If God is calling you and giving you a vision to leave that job that's soaking I mean, it's just draining your soul, right? It's just killing you. And go do something else more meaningful. But you've got a mortgage, and you've got to figure out the finances, and you need some answers before the vision is clear. Maybe you wait before you tell your spouse. Maybe just a little bit. Not, not too long. Don't keep secrets. It's only a secret if you keep it too long. Like, maybe you wait. I'm just saying, maybe you wait. Because if you speak before you're ready to speak intelligently, well, you're ready to let God speak through you and to show those who will follow you there how you're going to get there. Like, you're going to lose their confidence. And then they're going to talk you out of it. Even though they're good, good folks for you. They have your best interest at heart. They're like, are you sure? No, I'm not sure at all. I don't know. Right? Because you hadn't done the recon. You hadn't prepared. You hadn't surveyed the ruins of the past to learn how to correct those mistakes. You hadn't thought about counting the cost yet. You know, if God's calling you into ministry, you're a young man, young woman, or maybe not so young, whatever, like, you're not alone here. we got six or seven people in this congregation who are either in seminary or going there soon. And if God's calling you to do that, to leave some career and go serve him, awesome. Maybe don't tell mama for a couple months, but awesome, because <laughs> many a mama has talked their baby out of seminary. <laughs> Believe me, because it's a risk. Sometimes we need to learn to guard our tongue to hold our cards close to the vest while we pray, while God shows us the reality of our situation and the pathway forward, all right? So I think that's one thing Nehemiah um, learned uh, through this process. He was trying as best he could to count the cost before going in uh, and building his following. All right, anytime. God lays a vision on your heart to lead someone someplace better. It's going to come with a cost. And if you're on cruise control and nothing ever really costs you anything, and what I mean by that is you never really risk anything. Things are pretty comfortable and you're cruising and that's good. You got a plan, you got a retirement, you got all the stuff, and that's good, but that's not a vision from God. A vision from God will tax you. I'm sorry, it will cost you. And, and, and I don't, I'm not trying to scare you away. I just want you to know that if it's a vision from God, it's going to hurt a little. Because that's part of it. That's part of the deal. Leadership is discipleship. It comes at a cost. It's more than just membership. And so we have to ask if we are willing to shoulder that cost and bear that risk. Here's the deal. Jesus says it very plainly, a little too plainly if you ask me. This is on the list of stuff I wish Jesus probably never said, but he said it. Are you ready? 
Luke chapter 14, this is what Jesus said about the cost of discipleship. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. What? Surely he's, I've, heard, I've seen many preachers, I've been the preacher that bent over backwards to explain this away and domesticate this guy because I don't know this guy. Like, I know the guy who's like, my burden is easy, my yoke is light, and he's all the stuff like, I'll take care of you always. Like, no, not so much. If, if you don't want to give me everything, you cannot be my disciple. What? When I was prep, uh, doing some last-minute prep this morning for my sermon, uh, this was up on my computer screen, and my son walked in. He's nine years old. He walked in, and he saw it, and he just read it. And as he read it, I saw his wheels turning. He was like, wait, I know what he was thinking. Mommy and Daddy always tell me not to hate my sister, but <laughs> Jesus is on my side. <laughs> he didn't say it, but I know that's what he was thinking. Some of y'all might feel the same way. Like, yeah, way ahead of you, Jesus. Like, my dad's the worst or whatever. You know, it's like, yeah, I'm in. Let's go. Uh, that's not what Jesus means here. What this means is that if you want to follow Jesus, it's going to mean being willing, at least being willing to give him everything, including the most important thing. And if you don't believe your family or your kids can be your idol and your God, you're missing the truth. You're blind to the reality. For most of us, we worship the nuclear family. We worship our kids, and we helicopter over them. We never want them to suffer. It's the worst thing you can do for a child, but we do it anyway because they're on the pedestal where Jesus belongs. And if you're not willing to put Jesus light years ahead of your kids and your family and your spouse and parents and all of that, you don't understand Jesus. It's not that you're family doesn't matter. It's that Jesus matters infinitely more. He matters so much that whatever else you care about in this life pales, pales in comparison to his glory and his worth. And even that cost, considering that cost, losing that part of your life, Jesus is worthy of even that cost. That's what he's saying. That's the cost of discipleship. Wow. Seeing that Jesus maybe never wanted a huge crowd of fans who just watch him be awesome. Right? The coolest thing about this passage is that right before it, Jesus had a huge crowd suddenly following him. And his disciples are like, woohoo! We're a big church, and like, this is our dream. And like, right, Jesus, you're famous. And he's like, if you don't hate your children, <laughs> I imagine that thinned out the crowd pretty good. Because Jesus doesn't care about critical mass or about his own celebrity. He would rather have a small group of disciples than a multitude of fans. And you can give him everything or you can give him nothing but don't try to just give him your Sunday don't just give him your religion don't domesticate him right don't make it soft like that 
He's either Jesus or he's not. He's either God or he's not. He's either worthy or he's not. So count the cost and then decide whether he's worthy. This is the next part of that passage uh, from Luke 14, uh, verse 28 to 30 and 33. He says, suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost? See if you have enough money to complete it. For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying, this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. How often have you seen, or maybe you've been the person who gets emotional about Jesus or an experience you have, and then you tell the whole world, I'm a Christian now, everything's different, and then a week later, you're right back to where you began? Sometimes we get ahead of ourselves, you know, and we start to talk about it before we're really ready to count the cost and say he's worthy, right? Uh, We've been counting the cost on this Timber Grove expansion for two years now, and y'all are probably sick of hearing me talk about that, uh, that process. But that's what it entails. We've been praying, planning, counting the cost, wondering if this is what God wants for us. You have to understand that before that, plan A was to build a bigger facility here with, like, theater seating and more comfortable chairs. Anyone want a more comfortable chair right now? Anyone? Woo-hoo! Yeah, I'll take a more comfortable chair. Listen, you're stuck with these. All right? <laughs> Jesus took a cross. You can handle a chair, all right? The chairs are here to stay, probably. We might send them to Timber Grove, but they're probably here to stay. The building's here to stay. We don't need a giant auditorium. If you want that in Houston, there's plenty of other places for you to do that. Jesus gave us a vision of inspiring non-religious Houstonians to follow him. We should not build a big auditorium on a church campus in the middle of like one of the most like wealthiest and some would say like uppity parts of Houston and then expect all the non-religious folks in Houston to come find us here. We have to go, even if it's a risk, even if it's scary, even if it's costly, and it will be. I've counted the cost. If you want to know how much, come see me after the service and bring your checkbook. It's going to be costly. And it means saying no to that other vision that we had fallen in love with. That was us. That was me. Was not Jesus. This vision is this vision of expansion without the celebrity aspect, without a cult of personality. Gosh, listen, it happens so easily in churches. Please don't ever do that to Gio and me or anyone else. Please. Let us be your brother and your sister in Christ, following him together. Let's let him pastor us. Otherwise, we're gonna let you down we're not that good and it's not about us it's about Jesus and leading people to him right to know him more and that's costly I know that uh, when Kale and I were writing this sermon together because Kale's going to preach another version of this sermon at 4 o'clock and y'all come back and support him if you can we might be here to 4 I don't know. We'll just start that service right after this one. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Um, but he and I wrote the sermon together, and we were a little bit concerned because we were like, this is a challenging message. It's, why would anyone do what we're saying? Count the cost? Give everything away? It's going to hurt? Like, nah, I'm good. <laughs> My calendar's full. There's not much else I can do here. Why be a disciple? And being a fan of Jesus is much more fun and less difficult. I think the answer is deep down inside of you. 
And if you're wondering what the vision of God is for your life, and you're thinking, well, maybe some in this room have got a vision from God, but I've never seen one. I'm telling you what it is right now. The vision of God for your life is discipleship. It's following Jesus and no one else. It's worshiping him and nothing else. Because anything else will disappoint you. Nothing else is worthy. Like he is worthy. And deep down, you know he is worthy of that cost. And deep down, you know that it's worth it because like Nehemiah, we live in a city in ruins. I'm not talking about flooding, although that could be said. I'm talking about spiritual ruins in need of rebuilding. We know that many of us live in homes in need of an awakening. Many of us are dwelling in marriages just pottering along in need of renewal and fire again. Many of us are living next door to neighbors who need a reminder that they're loved and somebody cares. We live in a city where human trafficking and sex trafficking just has its grip on us and no one ever says or does anything about it. We know that we live in a city full of orphans that need adopting. Racism that needs calling out. Despair that needs some hope. And will it cost you your social life? Probably. You'll get invited to less parties. I'll just tell you that. Will people talk differently around you? Yeah. That's a good thing. Because you're lifting them up instead of letting them pull you down. Will it cost you maybe some romantic interest? Maybe a little bit of your personal intimate life will have to change. Yeah, it will. Probably. Will it cost you financially? Will it cost you in terms of time? Yes. Will your future look different than you imagined? Yes. Will it no longer be all about retiring at a certain age? Absolutely, because that's boring anyway. That's not why you're here. He made you for more. To follow him and to lead others. You, like Nehemiah, have the blessing of the king. You have his word of provision and protection. Even when it's scary and costly, he comes through. And that's how you know when it's a vision from God. When there are days and you think, I don't have what it takes, I'm ready to quit. Too hard. That's where grace comes in to carry you. Discipleship comes at a cost, but it's a cost that's always worth it. Because the one we follow is worthy and he's given us a worthy cause. Don't be afraid to follow him. Let's pray. God, give us wisdom to see your vision for our lives and give us courage. Courage to count the cost, to step out in faith. Even if it's hard, and even if we're sure we don't have what it takes and we don't know what we're doing, God, give us courage to rely on you and to know that there's
there's more we're here to do than just work in an office and make enough money to retire comfortably. God, free us from that boring vision and set us loose to bring rebuilding and reconstruction to our families, our relationships in this city. Thank you, Jesus, for leading us. Help us to follow you with all our hearts and not just our Sunday morning. In your name we pray.